Hey, how's it going? Welcome back to the Football Diary podcast. Um, you could have been with any podcast in the world and you're here with me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, joined once again by Miles. Pleasure to see you, man. How has your football week been? Uh, not too bad. I mean, not played any personally because I'm still uh, nursing an injury. But uh, I say not too bad. I watched Villa play Wolves the other day and they were absolutely dreadful. I think I'm, I'm, I'm just on a high of watching Jose Mourinho's room and get another 1-0 win. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> As predicted right here on this pod. Always. <laughs> the Jose way. Yeah, we won't talk about Villa too much. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, but I want to start the pod by talking about Brentford's sensational victory against Chelsea. I mean, Chelsea were unbeaten for the whole month of March. Uh, I mean, you said before we went uh, recording on this that it wasn't a convincing run for them. But the way Brentford blew them away um, was down to kind of one man's influence, really. Well, it was a team effort, but Christian Eriksen was so influential, wasn't he? He got his first goal in club colours. He looks like an astute piece of business, doesn't he? It's great to see him back. You can't help but be happy seeing Christian Eriksen play in this way, can you, really? It's mad how quickly he slotted in and just looks like Christian Eriksen obviously there was a spell of him kind of he signed and then didn't play for a little while he was kind of gathering his match fitness but I don't think no. anyone would have anticipated that he would have just slotted in at that sort of no. elite level straight away but he, he really is and not just for his club side I mean we saw and I think we might have spoke about it last week the yeah. impact he had when he came on for Denmark as well but to do it against Chelsea in the Premier League in one of Brentford's biggest ever wins, let's say. Great result. They're in the Premier League. It's a West London derby. It's a massive game for them. What a result that is. And and yeah, it's it's wonderful to see him kind of spearheading that. But there was a lot of Brentford players that could get a lot of credit really in this result, I think. Yeah, I think the way that they responded to going down to it and a sensational strike from Antonio Rudiger as well was incredibly I don't know strong spirited strong willed and their form since they've had Ericsson playing that kind of football has been really impressive it's changed the way they play I mean there was a lot of criticism when they kind of lost their momentum Brentford at the start of the mm. season to the middle where they were so predictable to play against and they were channeling a lot of their attacks down the wings but they had no mm. creativity in the middle really so he's provided that and he just opened up so many doors didn't he I mean aside from his own goal that he scored he was the centre of everything good they did, wasn't he, really? Yeah, I think the most important thing for Brentford in this was that they responded to going 1-0 down very quickly. Because yeah. you know what teams like Chelsea are like? Once they've got a lead and they can get a foothold in the game, it's really hard to grind out a result against them. But they did, they bit back quite quickly. And there were signs of it in the first half that they could. And really, when you look at that Chelsea midfield that started this game, Brentford midfield was what won it for them. All three yeah. of them played incredibly well. And I think although Ericsson is obviously instrumental in their success of late, having Ivan Tony back in there massively helps. Although he didn't score in this game again, he's still connecting everything that they do. And I think he's a wonderful striker. I'm really interested to see where his career progresses to now, whether he stays at Brentford for another year or not, because there is potential there for a really good number nine. And it's the same with Ericsson, really. Does he remain at Brentford next season? Does he feel settled enough that he says, yeah, I'll, I just want to be here and happy and playing football? Because Well, let's, let's not get too negative yet. I was trying to celebrate Brentford's win here. Like, this could be a turnaround in their fortune. It's true. You're right. There's so many questions being asked now because their players are, are looking like really valuable assets, aren't they? 
quite a few of them. I mean, Brian and Bremo as well. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah. And he's had, had a really strong season. And Whistler came off the bench and scored as well. So they've got great assets. And all of a sudden, that dip in form where we started to wonder if Brentford were going to slide into the relegation picture, they're out of it now. There's no way they're getting sucked into it at this point. And that's because they've got some real, real quality in the side, not just Christian Eriksen, but yeah. that Jan out that scored uh, a brace in this game. I've seen him play for Brentford a couple of times now, and he looks like a really tidy player as well. So great result for Thomas Frank's men. And it would be interesting to see what Brentford do next season, really, whether they can invest in the summer or not. It would be uh, exciting to see him playing good football again. Well, that's interesting to consider, actually, because obviously Eriksen... There was question marks over his fitness from a few people. And I know I was genuinely worried whether he could commit to playing 90 minutes of top-level football again. I think we all were slightly worried by that. Mm. Doctors obviously gave him the all-clear. Brentford at the time, I mean, in hindsight, it sounds ridiculous, but they took, let's face it, a bit of a gamble, didn't they, taking him mm. on. And he's absolutely proved beyond any doubt that his fitness is not an issue. He's almost mm. not lost any of the spark that he had prior. In fact, you mm. can almost see like a zest in the way he plays, like he's really grateful to be out there on the pitch. And yeah. that got to have influenced the outlook of his teammates as well. Because if yeah. you see Christian Eriksen lining up alongside you, giving everything he's given after everything he's been through, there's no excuse for you not to really. I definitely feel like he's raised Brentford's game across the whole team. He definitely has. And obviously there was already talk that Antonio Conte was looking at him in terms of in the summer because he did only sign a short-term contract with Brentford. And you wonder whether a reunion with Spurs and with Conte would be an even more romantic ending to this story, really. It's just brilliant to see him back on the football pitch, of course. But it's not just a narrative anymore. Because, of course, when yeah. something like that happens, you're all consumed with the story behind it and just go, oh, isn't it nice that he's playing football? Well, no, it's not just nice that he's playing football. He's excellent at football and he's doing that job as well. And I think he deserves a lot of credit, not just for the sort of mental struggle that he'll have had to have overcome, but the yeah. fact that physically he, he just looks like a fantastic footballer again. It's not about the incident anymore. It's about him progressing his career. And that's brilliant that he can, that he can do that. And Brentford are, are definitely gaining a, a wonderful asset from the fact he's doing that. Yeah, well, he's only 30 as well. I think I have to remind mm. myself, you feel like he's older because he's been around for so long. And he yeah. started out at Ajax so young, but no, 30 yeah. with plenty to play for still. And it's interesting when you look at Chelsea, because really, we started the season, I think both you and I said that we thought they'd win the league. And for the longest time, it was a three-horse title race. Yeah, And there was no room for anyone to break into that top three. Now, all of a sudden... It's not impossible to think that Chelsea could let third go. They'll probably finish in the top four, you'd imagine. But with Tottenham really finding their form, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, and Arsenal obviously looking really strong, Chelsea need to sort themselves out quickly. And with mm. the uncertainty around that club as well, who knows where that could lead them next season? It's it's a really odd one for them. It was a yeah. really poor result from their, their point of view. Well, we kind of talked and kind of talked up really their strength in depth, didn't we? As one of the main reasons why they could go far. But yeah. you look at their starting 11 and their back four looked old, you know. Yeah. Marcus Alonso, he's what, 30, 31. Thiago Silva's obviously 37, 38. Yeah. Uh, Tony Rudiger's at about 29, I think. So he was the youngest of the back four. Yeah. So their defence looked vulnerable, I think, especially yeah. to the kind of pace that Brentford were attacking at. That really mm -hmm. caught them out. Their midfield featuring Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who, again, I can't see him having a future in a in a Chelsea team in, in going forward. I didn't think he would feature much this season. So 
he was central to their midfield, which got completely overrun. And then even their forward line, like where's Romelu Lukaku? Why mm. is he not starting? I know Havertz is a fantastic player. And to be fair, he's the one that's kind of coming out of this with more credit. He makes some yeah. really good runs. He, he makes things happen. But Chelsea just aren't, well, they didn't for this game work. And there's been a few occasions where it's looked a bit like that, really, hasn't there? I do wonder whether the top three in the league ran away with it so much at the start of the season that we kind of thought they were better than they are. Because even now, I just wonder if the rest of the competition in the league is poor. Because I watched Liverpool at the weekend, since City beat Burnley, and neither of them were particularly inspiring. I thought Liverpool were really average to watch but just who they were playing was so much worse that they kind of got away with it so it's quite nice to see a team like Brentford take a game to Chelsea and actually try and beat them at their own game and it works they are vulnerable these teams at the top it's not as elite as we necessarily give them credit for I don't think I just think there's a very mixed bag below them it's weird because you think of the the Chelsea strength in depth, but then you look at the players they've sent out on loan. You can easily see Conor Gallagher stepping into that midfield yeah. now, can't you, and making a difference. Armando Brozier making a difference as well. They've both had great seasons away from the club. Yeah. There's a lot of questions for Thomas Tuchel to ask of his squad in the summer, which, again, is not a bad position to be in. And they've still got the Champions League. They've still probably got top four, top four still wrapped up, I'd imagine. Yeah. Whether that's third or fourth, we don't know. But it still could be a very good season for them. But so much below where we saw them and I think many others did as well. Yeah, and I think when we talked about the strength and depth that Chelsea had, we were mainly referring to those attacking areas because, of course, at the start of the season, we were really excited to see how they would gel the likes of Ziyech, Pulisic, Werner, Havertz, Lukaku, uh, Lukaku and Mason Mann in, in attacking positions. But when you look and think Timo Werner's still underwhelming, Lukaku's definitely been underwhelming, that depth isn't really there anymore. And like you say, at the back, they look really like they, yeah. they need some reinforcement there. And they've just triggered an option in Cesar Aspilicueta's contract, an automatic extension. Because otherwise, they were going to be stuffed next season, to be honest. Who yeah. knows what's going on with that? We're still waiting to see what's going on with the bidding process and who's been successful. There's talk of a consortium being led by John Terry being one of the, the front runners now. So who knows? Yeah, whatever they need is going to be expensive, I think it's fair yeah, to say. Definitely. Um, and whether Tuchel will be the person to, to to be in charge of that as well, I don't think he even knows the answer to that question. Mm. So, yeah, uneasy times for Chelsea. But uh, mm. it's one result. Let's not blow it out of proportion, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, they tend to struggle after international breaks as well, I think. Mm. They did the same last season and lost to West Brom. Sam Allardyce's West yeah, Brom, yeah, do you remember? remember. Yeah. Um, 5-0 or 5-1. So they've capitulated in similar circumstances in the past. So... It's one of them days you'd like to think, but well done to Brentford still. Massive win for them, yeah. And like we say, that's their season pretty much done now in terms of the goals that they wanted to achieve. They they would have gone into this season thinking, let's consolidate, make sure we get a respectable finish and aren't in a relegation battle. And they've they've done that really successfully. So and that's including really big injuries. I think David Rea missed a massive portion of this season. Ivan Tony had a, a good spell on the sidelines. So yeah, Brentford are brilliant. I'm really, I'm really enjoying watching them at the moment. So great result for them. Moving on to Tottenham now, because top four seems to be almost a two-horse race now, with United definitely falling behind quite a bit, which we'll, we won't touch on too much. But Spurs beat Newcastle 5-1. It was a really, really resounding victory and thoroughly deserved as well. Now, the system seems to be clicking into place at just the right time. And Antonio Conte, to his credit, has really persisted with 
his philosophy really and the players that he picked this time around weren't particularly like nailed on first 11 starters and all of the goal scorers were a bit odd really they weren't regulars for the team but the fact they slotted into his system so seamlessly and the result was so resounding must be encouraging for Spurs at this stage of the season surely massively I mean you can't not be encouraged when you see that they're now in fourth place granted Arsenal have two games in hand and you definitely expect them to beat Crystal Palace this evening with the way that they've been playing but also no team has scored more goals in 2022 than Spurs they've scored 30 goals already this year I didn't know that wow yeah they're on a real incline in terms of their attacking output obviously five in this game really helps but Mm. To me, when you see that front three in particular of Kane, Son and Kulovzewski, they're fantastic. They they seem to be working really well together. They operate with a lot of pace on uh, in the wider areas with Son and Kulovzewski. And Kane has found that new ability to just drop deep and be a playmaker as well as being one of the best finishers in the league. So it's a wonderful uh, problem to have for Conte that now people like Bergvine, who were really are relying on cameos off the bench and getting goals. So there's depth in that Tottenham attack, which is really benefiting them. And they're finally seeming to piece together a defence in midfield that looks efficient. Because that's what we've said all season with Spurs. We wondered whether they would be able to structure any sort of centre-back pairings or anything that would work. Was the midfield too weak? Well, they brought in Bentancur, who slotted in brilliantly. I think he looks really, really good. Still disappointed he didn't come to Villa. And and at, at the back now, they found this new role for Ben Davies. Uh, Romero is, is finally coming through as the player we expected. And if you look at Spurs' win record with Eric Dyer in the side this year, yeah. he's been he's been brilliant. He's had a really good role at Spurs. And I thought well, he fairly great. criticised, really. He didn't deserve the criticism he got. I mean, I was one of the people that probably did criticise him. But mm. I think because he's so versatile, that's almost his weakness. But to see him at centre-back and doing OK, that's encouraging. That's such an that's such an Antonio Conte thing to do, though. A versatile player that he can utilise, who who can be quite heavy-handed on the pitch mm. and kind of get himself about. Conte loves that from his defensive players. And and him and Hoiberg are, are pretty much made for that sort of system. So I'm not surprised to see them getting some sort of success from that. They do need to be more consistent still, Spurs. Uh, this is a brilliant win. Don't forget, Newcastle went on their longest ever unbeaten run uh, in that, well, not long as ever, what, in the last 20 years or something like that? Oh, just yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago. Now, all right, this is their third loss in a row, so it might be a bit of a reality check that they're not quite with the big boys yet, even if they've got the money. But I thought Spurs looked, looked excellent. And like you say, it was systematic. That's what won them this game. The fullbacks played incredibly well. You've got yeah. Doc playing as a left wing back all of a sudden, but he played brilliantly and he popped up with a goal as well. And Emerson Royale scored as well, which is just bizarre, but... No, a really good win for Spurs. Really, really encouraging. I think for me, it's the link-up play between the front three, which I don't think we've seen since the days of Christian Eriksen was part of that trio. Um, mm. Or when Lucas Moura was actually in good form, yeah, he's been struggling. But to see Kulosevsky step into mm. that attacking trio seamlessly, really, is yeah. is encouraging. Do you think he's one that will stick around at Spurs? Yeah, hundred percent. So I think it's they've got an option to buy this summer and an obligation to buy the year after if he meets certain clauses. Well, I'll be really surprised if Spurs don't try and activate that as soon as possible because yeah. he, he's looked fantastic and he looks really well suited to the Premier League because I think in his youth career he wasn't necessarily a winger; he was more of a midfielder, and he's kind of become this winger as he's got. And I was going to say older, but I think he's only twenty still or twenty-one. 
Yeah. But what that means is he's got physicality and pace, and that is perfect for a Premier League winger. He's very direct as well. And we've seen over the last few years that those sort of direct wingers have been quite su- successful in the Premier League. You think yeah. of players like Rafinha or St. Maximan at Newcastle, players that can kind of scare a fullback and run in behind that space that fullbacks leave when they're attacking now. Mm-hmm. It works well for them. And Kulazeski, I think he's slotted into Spurs' attack brilliantly. Well, you mentioned when they signed him um, that he hadn't really set the world alight at Juventus. So what were Juventus doing wrong and what's Conte doing to get the best out of him now? What's the difference? Juventus had really high hopes for him, obviously, because he he, he impressed so much when they brought him in. And when he first came into the side, he did look quite sharp. His first few appearances for Juventus were really, really encouraging roles. But I think since Allegri came in this season, he just was peripheral and he wasn't part of the system that Allegri likes to play. He doesn't necessarily use a lot of wingers, Allegri. If you think about the system, he, he yeah. relies on more the likes of Quadrado getting forward on that right-hand side than Kulazeski. So I think it's just the right move at the right time for him now. And Conte, we know, likes to play that system where he does have wing-backs that will support and get forward, but also have wide forwards. So you overload the flanks, and Kulazeski is yeah. very good at exploiting that space and then cutting inside. We've seen it a few times already. I think yeah. he, I think he looks really sharp. I think he he's one of them players that sort of makes Son Heung Min play to his best as well. And I think since he's yeah. been at the club, Son's actually stepped up his game. He's probably in some of the best form of his life. He's one yeah. of my favourite Premier League players to watch at the minute and overall. I think he's just fantastic. Begs yeah. the question though. What does this do for Harry Kane if Spurs do get Champions League football? Does he suddenly think, I can stick around? Or is he still looking to get that Man City move that he wants? He won't get a Man City move now. Man City won't go in for him this summer. I'm quite confident of that. They signed Julian Alvarez, and I think they'll be looking quite heavily at Erling Haaland as well. I can't imagine them going back in for Kane with the kind of figures that are being touted. The thing with Kane is, I think he'll have two more years after this season on his contract. Um, Yeah. And... He's already talked really highly about Antonio Conte and how much he likes working with him. And I think his options to move on are becoming more and more limited. Really, Mm. the most obvious destination for him if he leaves Spurs is probably Man United. Do you want to make that move right now? I think he... Harry Kane, absolutely no. Definitely not. The only way I can see that happening is if Pochettino does get the the job and he thinks, oh, that that might be a good fit for me now. I'll get the big move. I'll Mm. move away from Spurs. I'll be the guy that spearheads Pochettino's attack, a bit like when Van Persie moved to United to get them some success. But I can't see it. I don't think he'll move this summer. I think he'll stay at Spurs again. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a new contract from him if Conte signs a longer deal as well. Yeah, I think a lot of it does depend on Conte. If he's as complimentary about him as you say... That's so important to him, is having a coach there that will try and play to his strengths and get the best out of him. That didn't happen for a while once Pochettino left, did it really? And it's that feeling of being wanted and needed. He definitely liked working under Mourinho. And I think Mourinho got the best out of him. If you look, last season, he was top scorer and top assist uh, leader for the league. Mourinho definitely in- improved his game. That's a goal scorer, as... I think. But he's not yeah. more than just a goal scorer. That's the thing. And I think if you exercise all those parts of his link-up play, for example, that's when he's at his best for me. It's ridiculous. And then when you think about the summer that Spurs had, when they had no clue who was going to be the manager, yeah. I'm not surprised that he wanted to move away because they weren't matching his ambition. If Spurs can show genuine sign that they are matching his ambition with a coach like Conte, if they spend some money this summer, Conte is a serial winner. 
So if I'm Kane, I'm thinking, okay, I'll give you another year. And then by then, he's got 12 months left on his contract. It's much easier for him to move on if he wants to next summer because Spurs will need to, to cash in on a prized asset. So I don't think he'll be going anywhere next year. Okay. So in terms of the race of top four, obviously yeah. Arsenal play tonight, Monday as we speak. They've still got two games in hand, but mm-hmm. Spurs have edged into the top four, I think, for the first time in a while, yeah. albeit on goal difference and albeit two games behind what Arsenal still have to play. Yeah. There's still points on the board. It's still a big turnaround from a Spurs perspective. And they've still got to play each other, of course. So that is still, well, it's always a big game, but it's now become absolutely huge, hasn't it, for both teams? If you think about the key areas of the league that need to be decided at the moment, it's really good because all of them need to play each other still. We'll talk obviously later, I'm sure, about Man City playing Liverpool this weekend. Spurs have still got to play Arsenal. And then Everton have got games against Burnley and Watford to come still. It's brilliant. Like you couldn't you couldn't ask for better fixtures really at this point in the season. It probably will come down to whoever wins the North London Derby will get fourth, which is amazing. What a cup final that is gonna be like. And that game doesn't really need much spicing of as it is. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. I think at the moment, I think Arsenal have the edge in terms of they look like they're on a very good run of form. They look quite consistent. They look like a, a great side. Yeah. But I do worry about them when they come up against bigger opposition. And although Spurs really, Arsenal, have the capability of beating, I just hope that their mentality sticks for that game and they can get through it. It would be It's going yeah. to be a fascinating one. I, couldn't, I can't predict who's going to get fourth at this stage. I think it will be Arsenal, but it's too tight. You have to say that because of your family connections, though, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I'll You'd be, be in I'll, trouble if you did. I'd be in a lot of trouble if I said otherwise. <laughs> I think I just want to see as a neutral a game where there's no stupid mistakes, where everyone plays to the absolute optimum because yeah. both teams on their day look great. And I just don't want to see anyone messing it up. I don't want to see any red cards. You know, oh, I know it's say, an than Derby, but it's got a Granite Xhaka red card written all over it, that game. <laughs> it needs to be a contest. And I think as a neutral, that's what I want to see. But yeah these things don't always play out like that. There's probably going to be a very tense affair at the end of the day. Well, Um, unless Arsenal lose to Palace tonight and then all of a sudden it's a different conversation, but I can't see again. It could happen though. Do you know? It's one of them seasons. Vieira's doing well there, but I I think think Arsenal will have enough. Well, it's Vieira as well. Added spice, narrative, you know. We love that. I'd probably roll over and let let him have it. (laughs) No, he's got a point to prove, hasn't he? (laughs) That's his future employer, surely. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So moving on to slightly below the top four is where United now currently sit and probably will end up. I think the way the way um, it was spoken about after the game with the draw against Leicester um, was no good to either team. But United seems to be out of the picture now. I think they've kind of resigned themselves to that. Um, West Ham, however, look like they're really competing for a European place with United, whether that be fifth, sixth or seventh, we don't know yet. But they were convincing in their victory. Um and I think that now puts them in a really strong position to end the season on on a really positive note, doesn't it? I mean, albeit the result came against very poor opposition again in, in Everton, who was just so unpredictable at the moment. But a 2-1 win nonetheless. And Jared Bowen back in the team made a big difference. They look decent, don't they? At home, it always feels like such a big occasion now. The way that the London Stadium was turned around and to be this cauldron is great spectacle for us to watch now. They look like a team that has the support of the fans, which again, two, three seasons ago, looked unlikely. But yeah, they look good value for the win. Yeah, and I think Burnley and Watford will be really incredibly grateful because with the Leon game coming this week, I think a lot of us anticipate that West Ham might 
have one eye on that and not really go for this game quite in the same way. But actually, David Moyes talked about it as, uh, I think he called it a dress rehearsal for, for midweek. So they really did take it seriously and, and it was a great win for them again. You are right. You, you kind of expect anyone to beat Everton at the moment, even if Newcastle couldn't. And when they're getting a man sent off every single game, it becomes slightly easier. When they're playing Mason Holgate as a centre midfielder, it becomes even easier. It just got a good goal, though, to be fair. I thought he scored a really good goal. And then I saw how big the deflection was on it and it kind of took it away from me, to be honest. <laughs> um, no, I think it was really encouraging for West Ham. With Lanzini out, Bowen just coming back from injury, you wondered what their attacking output would really be like. And again, Antonio caused all sorts of issues. Bowen got a goal, which would be fantastic for him because that's the last thing a player like that needs. Hit wonderful goal-scoring form and then get an injury and really struggle to pick the momentum back up for the run-in at the end of the season. And actually carried on where he left off. And that'll be a real lift for him and David Moyes massively. But uh, yeah, I actually am really enjoying watching West Ham. I've never really been a big fan of West Ham for any reason. But at the moment, it's quite easy to get behind them because they are the ones most likely to uh, disrupt the apple cart, whatever the saying is, because they they do look strong as a unit now, which you wouldn't have anticipated that 12 or 18 months ago. They're just fun. Great fun to watch. They've got players that do attack at some pace and they can pick each other out. Their first 11 is so strong for that reason because they find each other and they've got players that just get the crowd off their feet, which is why the atmosphere is probably as good as it is lately at the London Stadium. But with a free kick like the one Aaron Cresswell scored as well, Brilliant. Pretty special, wasn't it? I mean, there's another one to talk about this weekend with James Ward-Prowse, but he does that every day, every week of his uh, of his life. But this one, yeah, it was a great way to, to start the game, really. Yeah, and David Moyes was talking about it again after the game, and I think he said that he's never seen Cresswell score a free kick. So he was a bit annoyed at him for shooting at first. But it was almost like he'd watched that Gareth Bale one the other day and thought, right, let me have yeah. a go at that. Because he put it in pretty much the same spot. It was brilliant. I thought it was a really good hit. And he's had a great time at West Ham. I think he's quite underrated as what a servant he's been to that club. But also, as a Premier League fullback, he's very consistent, Aaron Aaron Cresswell. And uh, someone that maybe has been overlooked internationally for a little while. Because he's got a great delivery. He's good from a dead ball. I I think he's a very good utility player for West Ham too. So, Yeah. yeah, a lot of likeable characters. And it's so bizarre because going into the pandemic, West Ham were an absolute shambles, if you remember. And like they brought David Moyes in that first time to basically stop them from getting relegated. And what a job he has done there. Like I think a lot of Everton fans would be uh, looking over at that dugout and thinking, what have we let go here? And why didn't we go back sooner? Because... Everton United fans, mate, in some ways, I look at him and think, do you know what? That's probably an upgrade on what we've had lately. And I think when you look at Everton, they've got to be seriously worried now. Because the, the thing is... There's been a, a lot of conversation about Everton being too big to go down, but people might have said the same about the likes of Sunderland, Leeds, when it happened to them, even Villa at yeah. the time. But they're just not getting a run of form together. They've won three games all season. That That's awful for, for, for Everton. It's, you can't anticipate that they're going to pick up enough points to get them out of this battle now. And really, if you're Burnley... And you're Sean Dyche's Burnley. You're not worried about playing this Everton side. That is you going, right, there's the three points we need. And if you're Roy Hodgson at Watford, you're targeting that game as well. But Everton don't look like they're able to target any game right now because they look so shaken by what's going on. 
you know what? They're, they're kind of architects of their own downfall, though, because Richarlison played okay. He missed an absolute mm. sitter, which yeah. should have really kept them in contention. But then the sending off was just, you expect better from Michael Keane, really, don't you? He's one of them senior players who you think, you know, keep your head. Come on. That's just, that's just not the time. It was like mm. in a time when the game was still on a bit of a knife edge as well. Killed it as a contest. So, yeah, Everton, <laughs> there's a bit of bad luck there, but their players are responsible for it fundamentally. And yeah. we've said at the start when Frank Lampard first came to the club, what a gamble he was, first of all. But then they've got players in their ranks who you thought might make a difference. So Deli Ali hasn't really done anything yet. That's what I was going to say to you. Uh, you say it's a bit of luck, but when you've got someone like Deli Ali that you've brought in and Lampard, honestly, you would have thought he would be the one to get the best out of him. You didn't even bring him on. No. Like in a game where you need a win. I realise I also said that they've won three times this season. I think it's three times this year, sorry. I mean, but I was going to say, it's more than three. I think it's only Burnley that are that bad. I think they've won seven. But still, because they started the season quite well, Everton, yeah. really. And I think a lot of people would have had hope for them. But I think they're just exposing how weak their squad actually is now. Because they brought Dominic Calvert-Lewin off in this game and didn't have a striker to replace him. They Obviously, Van der Beek got injured and they had to play Holgate in centre midfield. But you have to wonder, well, why has Ali not come on? I do yeah. wonder whether they're not going to keep Ali after this season because the deal that they've struck with Tottenham is dependent on how much he plays. So maybe they're already looking at it going, he's too expensive for us if we get relegated because financially they're a state. Let's not forget that they're, they're in the middle of building a new stadium. If they get relegated, this is really, really bad news for a club that's been signing players from Barcelona for the last few years on massive wages. It's it's not it's not looking good for Everton at all. No, are you worried about them from a relegation point of view? Then, if that's the way you're talking, it sounds like you are. Oh, massively! I th I, yeah. Now that win against Newcastle has honestly saved them a lot of trouble. But true, I would not be surprised if both Burnley and Watford beat them, and that's what they've got to avoid. Because I think now they've played the same amount of games as Burnley, but they've got four more points. So if Burnley yeah. beat them, that's a point all of a sudden. And I look at Everton's fixtures now, I, I don't know where their points are coming from. Where do they pick up points between now and the rest of the season? No. And they've got this awful disciplinary record of late. Lampard doesn't really seem to know what to do with this squad. And I don't necessarily think that's his fault. It's just a terrible squad. That's It's so mixed. It's not got yeah. any sort of coherent plan. And then he's brought in players in January that we don't see. Well, I know he's he's not the best. I've seen him at Villa. He's not great, but they've not even used El Ghazi yet. And if you're struggling to right. score goals, try him. I don't know. I just I I won't be surprised if Everton if Everton fall into it now. To be honest, I could see Burnley getting out of it. Do you know what I think? Based on the fact that Burnley have been here before, based yeah. on the fact that Watford have been here before, Hodgson's been here before. Yeah. This is new territory for Everton. This is new territory for Lampard. I absolutely think That's you're awesome. right. I think it only takes one of a defeat against one of those teams for them to suddenly start thinking we're in trouble. Because I don't think they are. I think they're in a bit of denial about it. I think Lampard yeah. is. And you talk about that squad and people talk about, oh, that squad's too good to go down and things. People who aren't Everton fans and probably don't watch the club too closely would talk about them being too good. But I think the telling thing is, if they did get relegated, which players would move straight back to the Premier League? You probably have Richarlison would get a big move. Calvert-Lewin would get a move. Short of that, are there any others? May maybe Pickford if he wanted to leave and maybe Yerry Mina? Definitely. Definitely Pickford, yeah. Um, sure of that. Someone would take Deli Ali because Spurs wouldn't keep him, that's for I sure. I don't know. 
maybe he'll he'll find that the championships got to be his next step because he's had this chance to move to another Premier League club right at the bottom of the league and it's not working there either. He's not looked too bad when he's played for him. I don't really get what's going on there. So crazy. Like you say, too good to go down on paper, but it's just a bit of a a mess of different managers' philosophies and signings. A bit like Man United in some ways where each player is... It's been spent a lot of money on. They're on high wages, and yeah, it could cripple them if they went down financially. Whereas, yeah. Whereas Burnley, they are at least orchestrated by one man. Now that man is Sean Dyche. He's not Mourinho <laughs> or Guardiola or Klopp, but at least they're like you say, they've been there before. They're a coherent team that know what yeah. their roles are, and they just need a few a few results, really. You can see Burnley getting a few draws between now and the end of the season and potentially beating Everton. And then all of a sudden, it's done. So, yeah. West Ham, good win. Everton, uh, could be bye for them, really, couldn't it? Yeah, looks like way. I think we've talked ourselves into them being relegation candidates more so now than they were before the pod. Uh, I I definitely feel like you've convinced me because I was unsure. But like you say, if they don't pick up points where it counts, it's going to look really tough for them, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, Moving on to the highlight of last week, which was the World Cup draw. So this has been quite exciting to see. Um, It's still absolutely crazy to think that it's going to take place in November and December. I can't get my head around that at all. I'm trying to plot time off work but it's November and December. Do you know what I mean? It's such a strange time of year. But England have got a very interesting group. They're in Group B. So I'll bring up now what that looks like so we can sort of talk about it as um, a talking point, really, from an England perspective. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got two home nations that could be that final seed. You've got the USA, Mm -hmm. who we haven't beaten at a World Cup, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And you've got Iran, who politically between the three of those other teams is, is politically charged. So they're also on kind of home turf in the Middle East. So they will probably have quite a few fans behind them as well, you'd imagine. They're one of the big hitters in the Asian the Asian division. Yeah. So, yeah, it's difficult. I think on world rankings, Group B is probably one of the better averages, is. which is yeah, mad. If you combine the world rankings, it is technically the hardest group, <laughs> but it's not. It's not. I no. But then you've got obviously that final berth, which I'm sure you'll talk about in a minute, which is going to be one of either the two home nations, Scotland or Wales, or the Ukraine. So in yeah. terms of emotional charge, yeah. it's just laced with different energy, isn't it? Oh, it's this group is narrative central, but there's a few of them that are like that. But um, no, honestly, without sounding too much like uh, a biased fan, England have to top this group. They, yeah. There would have been very few draws that England could have got where they wouldn't have been the favourites to top the group because of their recent form in international tournaments, which is fantastic. But I look at this group and think it is a favourable draw. If you look at some of the second-seeded teams that we could have picked up, the likes of Netherlands, uh, uh, Germany were in there as yeah. well, Denmark maybe, we'll be happy with what we've got, definitely. Um, I think it's really telling that uh, the conversation has been more on what the story will be rather yeah. than what the performance will be for each game. Because there is, like you say, narrative everywhere. And don't get me wrong, there will be tests within that group. If Wales qualify, we've we've seen England struggle against Wales. If, if Scotland qualify, we saw England struggle against Scotland in the Euros. So it's not a given that they'll win each game, but I'm really happy with it as a draw. I think... yeah. The biggest threat, obviously, is probably the US. 
but they kind of flattered in their qualifying campaign. It took them a long time to get through. They only qualified on the last day uh, and Canada flew through their group. But this is a very different American team to I think we've ever seen at an international tournament because all of a sudden they... It's always a weird one with America, isn't it? Because sport is such a massive part of their culture, but they've never really adopted uh, soccer. The amount of money that's invested into sport in the US is why in pretty much every single other sport, they are at the very top of the game. If you look at the Olympics, then it's always the US at the top because they have the facilities to succeed. Now, that's finally starting to come through in football. And you can see some big players at big clubs across Europe now and that's we've not really seen that in the US before. We've seen the likes of Dempsey in the Premier League. But now, all of a sudden, you're talking about Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, Weston McKennie at Juventus, Dest at Barcelona. You've got Tyler Adams at RB Leipzig, Giovanni Reiner at Dortmund. When was the last time that a US team had players of that sort of calibre at True. very top-level clubs? So it's not, the, it's not going to be a walkover, but England have got to be confident. And really this is a chance to build some momentum before the knockout stages of the group. They've got to be looking for yeah. three wins. I honestly think that. I, I think they've got the depth yeah. to do that. I think you're reluctant as an Englishman to sound arrogant saying that. I think we've been guilty yeah. in the past of being arrogant when we've actually absolutely not been anywhere near the strength we are now. But I think if you looked at these teams and played them in a friendly capacity, you'd yeah. imagine it's absolutely annihilating them each individually mm-hmm. on our day without yeah. any pressure. So that's the difference for me is how do each of those teams respond to a World Cup environment? We know Scotland will raise their game if they're through. We know Wales will because they bring all their fans with them as well and it changes it. It's like a yeah. Premier League fixture, isn't it? So I'm hoping they neither of those get through. And then for the others, yeah, it literally is on their day. How much will they bring to this game? Will it be enough to overcome whatever England have to offer? And that's another thing. It's all on England really to play the way we know they can play as efficiently as they can. Because like we said before with this England team, the starting 11 isn't actually decided. We know most of the starting 11, but the rest of the places are kind of up for grabs, most of, mostly up front. So we could interchange depending on who the opponents were. And that'd be the interesting thing for me to see what Gareth Southgate does with each of those fixtures. I'm not sure that most of the 11 is decided, to be honest. I think there would really? be very, very few players that are an automatic start at the moment. Because I think partly because the tournament is still a way off, and you don't know who's going to be available through injury or what sort of form players are going to be going into the tournament or something. But I think short of Harry Kane and probably John Stones and probably Maguire, I don't think anyone else is a guaranteed start, really. Declan Rice? Rice absolutely is, yeah. Those four. I think Drew Mile. I'd like to think Drew Bellingham has played himself into contention, to be fair. Exact contention. I don't think he's guaranteed, though, because he loves Henderson. He loves Phillips as well. So Phillips might not even make the squad at this rate because he's been injured so much. We we don't know. But I think you're right. England fans have tendencies of sounding quite arrogant going into a tournament because they've never had any reason to back it up. We've had two very good tournaments now in a Mm -hmm. row. And Southgate's built a great philosophy. And this generation of English talent, not only looks brilliant on paper, but actually gels together very well. Southgate's done a really good job at almost making it like a club squad. Grealish came out after the last friendly, and I saw an interview with him where he was saying that he knows that a lot of players used to be quite reluctant to go on international duty, but they all absolutely love getting that call up now because the camp is just brilliant for them. So I think England fans 
I don't think it is arrogance this time. I think it can be realism and, and confidence and optimism that actually we should be going into this tournament thinking whoever we come up against, we'll give them a game. Because yeah. in the Euros, we were one kick away from winning it. In the World Cup, really, we probably should have beaten Croatia on reflection. We yeah. just, I'm hoping we've learned from those experiences and grown a little bit. And actually, some extra quality has come into the squad since then. I would argue that the squad that we'll take to this World Cup is better than the squad that we've had from the last two tournaments. It is, yeah. I think that's the thing. We need to turn how confident we are as a team or becoming as a team into actual kind of realized arrogance because i think all the best teams have it man city have an arrogance about them they have a swagger but they've they've walked the walk you know they can they've proven they can do it so have england now and i think in the past it's just been completely misplaced arrogance where we haven't had the right to claim to be favorites because mm. we've done nothing in a major tournament prior to the last couple of tournaments really yeah. it's been a barren run for england fans yeah. but now like you say worthy to be amongst the favorites i think it's fair definitely. to say hesitant to say it but maybe that's the confidence that the players need to have yeah definitely i mean what about you though what about the rest of the draw is there anything that like caught your eye yeah i'm trying to figure out where there's a group of death but there's there's, there a lot of, there's a lot of very evenly matched groups i think the one that yeah. looks good for me is portugal ghana uruguay and south korea there's some very good players in that team that group that's probably the group that's the most even because actually the yeah. irony of this draw is the reason there's no group of death is because you and I could probably pick the teams that are going to qualify now. Like going into it, there are two very obvious teams that are going to qualify from each group that you would expect. Yeah. yeah, that's done. Now, there'll be a few exceptions to that. I think the groups that I'm really looking forward to seeing are Group F because I think Morocco and Canada could actually do something. Canada, I think Canada could be really like the the underdogs of the tournament the dark horses that will get a little Ooh. bit further than we'd anticipate use that term already dark horses <laughs> not to do anything major but if canada got to the quarter final or even if they got in the group to be honest i think we'd all go flipping neck that's impressive Very and morocco true. are the same i think they've got a bit of potential to upset a few people and you're right group h is probably the most balanced of all of them mm. and there's obviously so much narrative in there because of the uruguay ghana uh, World Cup game a few years back but yeah it's 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 not the most exciting draw I've ever seen I'll be honest it's like we've never seen well probably never will see Qatar at a World Cup again uh, <laughs> Canada again we, in my lifetime I haven't seen Canada in a major national international tournament so there's a few ones there that I'm like yeah let's see how they do yeah um, but I mean it's a novelty more than anything like you say there's no real standout groups where you think that could be tasty Group H for me is is the one. I think Group G could be a difficult one to get out of because the quality, yeah. again, is pretty decent. Serbia and Switzerland are kind of seasoned tournament veterans now, both teams. Yeah. So they could be a difficult one. Really interested to see how Senegal do mm. as African champions and whether they can take some kind of momentum going into it. They were lucky to be there, to be fair. They beat Egypt on penalties and they should not have had that advantage you that know the lasers all of that they're lucky they'll, to be there but they are african champions i think they might be the only african side that get out of the group stage as well yeah. looking at the draw i mean you could potentially see morocco pipping croatia potentially but other than that mm. i'm not confident in ghana because i thought they were really underwhelming at the african cup of nations cameroon i 
I really like the look of Serbia. When you look at their their attacking players, Vlahovic will be at his first World Cup, you'd imagine. Mitrovic yeah. always does a job for Serbia as well. I think they could they could impress a few people. And we've seen Switzerland pretty much always qualify for the last sixteen. So I think they'll struggle too. So I think there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of goodwill towards Senegal. And I think that they've got the group that really they should get through more than yeah. the other African sides would consider. And I've not actually plotted the path yet to the next round and the rounds beyond because I don't want to be guilty of arrogance. But have you seen what the next round might look like? Do you know what? I've done the same. I've ignored it. I've tried not to look through anything, to be honest, because I just, I I got into that trap at the Euros of going, right, where do I think we'll end up? And I was convinced England were going out quite early, to be honest. So at the moment, I'm just looking forward to seeing what the group stage holds and then we'll go from there. It's difficult, isn't it? Because this World Cup is such an odd one. Like you talk about trying to get the time off work and like getting used to the idea of it being in November and December. There's so many problems with it. It feels like we can't enjoy anything in sport these days without something overshadowing it. And when you see that there are, I think, 24,000 human rights violations between the workers and the Qatari stadiums, and instead the powers that be there are coming out with statements mm-hmm. saying there are no issues. We've actually improved conditions for our migrant workers. And they're very adamant that if you come, you will learn that actually there are no problems at all. But then when you do come, what you're met with is not the truth at all. And people that are trying to tell the truth are not able to. And it's just, it's so hard to be behind yeah. this World Cup. So even when the draw came out, you want to be excited and you are because it's an international tournament, but there is always that sort of black mark on it that makes you think, I'm not as up for this as I should be, unfortunately. So hopefully it'll be a good tournament and we can focus on the football at least because we're football fans. But I think it is important that at least we do consider at what cost does this tournament come, really. I think hopefully this is the last of the sports washing cycle we've seen lately because it was only four years ago that Russia hosted a World Cup, which now seems absolutely unthinkable. So maybe in another four years' time, we'll look at Qatar and go, why did we even do that? How did we let that happen? You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it still feels like a bit of a shock. Even when it was announced, obviously, it was unbelievable. Yeah. But even now it's actually happening. I still can't quite believe that that's been chosen as a host nation for an international tournament. Yeah. Whereas the next one, I think the next one is North America, isn't it? So I think it's split across the US, Canada and and Mexico, which would be fantastic. I I really like the sound of that. Like the World Cup being held in Mexico feels right, doesn't it? It does, yeah. um, It's a shame that they have to split it across the whole of the North American continent, to be fair. But yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) But um, I think, yeah, like like you say, in terms of football and heritage, a little bit more than Qatar, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. So... Moving on to um, final one before we go is the title running. So obviously we've already touched on Man City and Liverpool coasting to victories this weekend and every other weekend it feels like. And mm-hmm. it's all down to this head-to-head. Now it's probably going to be an absolute nil-nil board draw, which would be such an anti-climax. I don't think it will be. I'll go with you first. What's your prediction for Liverpool-Man City at the weekend? I ain't got a clue. <laughs> to be honest, I have not got a clue what to expect. I watched Liverpool-Watford this weekend. And yeah. I wasn't overly impressed. I actually thought Watford played quite well. So maybe it's a testament to Liverpool that they managed to come through that anyway. The penalty was, it's definitely a penalty. It's a foul, but it's just laughable because that happens every single game and is never given. So there needs to be some consistency there. But other than that, Liverpool didn't look really up for it. Salah barely featured in the game. Mane came on and, and struggled to impact it. I think really they're they're relying on the fact that Jota is in a very clinical run of form. And I wonder whether he can do that against Man City because 
the Man City are the strongest defence that Liverpool will face this season. And you could yeah. probably say the same about Man City facing Liverpool. These two teams have absolutely run away with the league and it is going to be so hard to call. If you pressed me, I think City will probably win. Um, yeah. I think it'd be narrow, but I, I think that they've probably got just a little bit more quality than Liverpool in this current moment. Yeah. But I could be completely wrong. <laughs> I agree. I'm probably just hoping that there's the lesser of two evils as a Manchester United fan that City win it again, to be fair. But I think the only way that Liverpool are going to win that particular game is if they take the lead fairly early on. Because we know yes. Man City struggle to come back from being down, especially against mm-hmm. the Liverpool, Liverpool team that will be difficult to break down. 1-0 early on in the first half an hour will yeah. be a, a tough one to overcome, I think. So that I can see Liverpool taking that and, and not letting go of it. Yeah. But I think Man City will do that to Liverpool. I think they'll dictate the momentum early on. I don't think we've seen Liverpool at their best for a little while. They've kind of coasted through games recently. Whereas I think City still look impressive, even in third gear. They still look like you can't get the ball off them. You know, I think I think Liverpool might end up chasing shadows for large parts of the game, which could absolutely exhaust them. So It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because this game is sandwiched between Champions League ties as well. And will City be thinking about the Athletic and Madrid game? And you'd imagine Liverpool are going to overcome Benfica fairly comfortably. Uh, so it's it's, yeah. it's it's so fascinating, this game. And to have essentially the league title riding on it is is huge. But yes. it's, there's still, what, eight, nine games to go? Nine, eight games to go for those two teams? So even if this result doesn't pan out it doesn't necessarily mean things are over but it's going to be an interesting one for sure yeah psychologically i think whoever takes the points if either team takes any points from it uh, other than the one um, will be a huge psychological advantage but yeah yeah, you're saying city i think i'm saying city um watch liverpool smash them five nil now (laughs) where the premier league goes at the minute yeah um that's it for this week's pod. Um, again, thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Please do give us some support if you can. Give us a like. That really helps the YouTube algorithm. algorithm. But also a follow if you're listening on Spotify would be a massive boost to, to where we appear on people's searches. So, yeah. Thank you for joining me again, Miles. Can't no wait for the weekend's showdown. Really excited to see how the Premier League pans out. And as always, great to talk to you. Cheers, mate. Thanks, man. See you soon. See you soon.